<clears throat> Good morning. December 1st, Christmas season is upon us. <laughs> Let me start this morning with a question. Are you the kind of person who would rather be a guest or have guests at Christmas time? Think about that for a second. Your thoughts on that uh, are probably in some way based on or, or uh, uh, related upon your thoughts, memories, feelings around a journey. If you'd rather be a guest or receive guests. Uh, as for me, when I think of Christmas time and journeys, now don't get me wrong, I like to move around, I like to go places, I like to travel, but for me, definitely that's a summer activity. Once we get into winter, I'm a hibernator. I mean, if it was possible, I would just, the bear has that figured out. I would just wait for spring. Uh, several years ago, and, and normally I have to work over the holidays, and that's been a consistent thing for 10, 15 years. And uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to be able to get home on Christmas. I was super excited, and I worked a really crummy schedule all the way through the month of December to be able to pull it off. And the way it was going to work is I was going to do an all-night shift, arrive in Chicago, Illinois at 6.45 in the morning, and then catch a quick flight at 7.30 back to Salt Lake City. I'd be in my home relaxing by 10.45, 11 o'clock on Christmas Day. That was the plan. I got to Chicago that morning after working all night, and uh, they were pre-canceling flights all over the world due to the big snowstorm that was supposed to hit later on that afternoon, including my flight home. So, uh, throughout the morning and then throughout the afternoon, I scampered around from gate to gate trying to find a flight home. By early evening, it was pretty clear I wasn't going to get to Salt Lake City, and my goal was just to get westbound from Chicago, get me out of this place. <laughs> By about 9 o'clock at night, it was pretty clear that west wasn't going to happen either, so now I'm just looking for a flight to anywhere, and at about 11.30 at night, I got on a flight to Oklahoma City. Uh, it was out of the storm zone. That's all I cared about at that point. The plan there was I'll get to Oklahoma City at 2.30 in the morning. There's a 6.45 flight to Salt Lake. I just have to stay awake one more night. There's no reason to try to go anywhere. So I, I get to Oklahoma City. I thought, all right, I'm finally here. It's been a really long day. I'm really bummed out. I didn't make it home. I'm super exhausted. I've been wearing the same polyester suit now for a day and a half. And I'm just going to sit down in this chair at the gate and get some quick shut-eye a couple of hours before the flight. And I just dozed off. And I feel somebody grab my foot, and I open my eyes. It's a police officer, and he says, hey, you can't be in here. We close this area of the airport at night. You have to go outside security. So I ended up, my big Christmas plan to get home, I ended up on a white tile floor leaned up against a baggage carousel, making, uh, uh, questioning some of my life choices to get to this point. <laughs> Ever since then, don't like to travel at Christmas time. I'm a receive guests guy. So would you rather arrive or greet those who are arriving? We're talking about arrival today, and arrival can be described this way. It is reaching a place at the end of a journey. Today, we're going to launch our Christmas sermon series, and we, we're calling this series Arrival. Another way that we talk about arrival, or when someone says, I've arrived, it can mean, I've met my goal, I've achieved success, I've made it, I've arrived. But our hope during this series and throughout the month is to convince you of this, our, theories, our series thesis, is that you can arrive now because Jesus arrived then. In other words, you don't have to fight, you don't have to struggle, you don't have to wait, uh, you don't have to strive. 
to be able to arrive in the place where you are loved, where you're forgiven, where you have a purpose, and where you have value and an identity that matters. All of those things are available today because Jesus arrived then. It's a dorky way to remember it, but you can uh, think, we don't have to strive to arrive. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Today and throughout this series, so throughout the whole month, we're going to really dig in and take a look at how the coming Christ changed forever the way that we relate to God and the way that God relates to the world. And in order to do that today, I'm going to have to take you back just a few years. Uh, God created the nation of Israel many, many years ago, and He did it for a divine purpose and as a means to a divine end. In about 2067 B.C., Uh, God told Abraham that he would have a son and that through his son Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All the nations of the world would be blessed. Now, I have to think that this sounded pretty weird to Abraham because in 2067 BC, Abraham's time, he he didn't live in a time that nations blessed one another. That was a very odd thing to say. The the United Nations uh, food program didn't exist. There was no such thing as the Red Cross. This was not a time that nations blessed one another. He lived in a time of city-states and regional kings, kind of small geographical areas all ruled by, by kings all over the place. And generally speaking, when one nation in Abraham's time had anything to do with another nation, it wasn't to bless them. It was to take over their land, kill most of their people, rule and enslave them, and take anything of value from them. It was like this, uh, excuse me, uh, King Joe or King uh, Bill, we have run out of farming land, and our people are going to starve out within a year. And uh, King whoever says, well, let's just go over to the neighbors and take all their land and kill 80% of their people, and then we'll put the 20% that are left to work as slaves, and that'll get us through a few more years, yeah? And that's really about how it works, a very simplified version, but that's how it works. So to Abraham... God telling him he's going to have a son, and through his son, all the nations would be blessed just must have sounded completely crazy. But that was God's mandate, and it didn't go away. We have it here many years later uh, in Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is God talking to the prophet Isaiah. He says, It is too small a thing for you, my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. See, God has always desired that all people know Him and that all people would have the opportunity to be able to experience the joy and the freedom that it means to be part of His family. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel, as the years went on, they they got to a point where they really lost sight of this mandate. They they got to a point where they were uh, insider-focused, inward-looking. Lack of a better term, they had become religion-y. It had become all about them. They, they had the one true God, and He was their God, and they kind of got into a, a mindset or an attitude that this is our God, and it's all about us, and we're going to keep Him for ourselves. And that violated uh, God's purposes for them and for the world. As insiders, then, they, they got to a point where they wanted to build a monument, really a, a monument for themselves, but they wanted to build a house for God a permanent structure for God to live in. And the problem is that the God of Israel never needed or wanted a permanent house. See, God told Moses 
to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle means a tent of meeting. And he dedicated seven chapters in Exodus giving very, very intricate and specific details of how to build that tabernacle. The key element of the tabernacle that God told Moses to build is that it was mobile. It could be quickly taken down and go with the people of Israel wherever they went. See, that's the key point. Wherever my people go, I will go with them. I'll be with them. And that's what the tabernacle uh, did. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read that it was David's idea, King David, to build God a house. Uh, and the, the scene is David has taken possession of uh, Jerusalem. His enemies are defeated, and he's standing, literally standing on the porch of his palace. Uh, the prophet Nathan was there with him, and he makes a comment. He says, it's ridiculous that I live in this beautiful cedar palace, and as he's looking down from the porch into the breezeway, he sees the tabernacle set up, and God is out there living in a tent. So David hatches the idea. He says, I'm going to build God a house. That's an idea that God rejected, uh, but later the temple was built anyway. And here's the problem, and point number one for your notes. God didn't need or want a house or permanent structure for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, a temple indicated that God lived there. But God made it clear that even though He would manifest His presence in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, He didn't live there. See, pagan temples all had that. They had a God who lived within the temple that was built for them. Uh, but Israel's God was spirit, and He couldn't be contained or limited in any way. Reason number two is that God never intended for the Israelites to build anything that would limit the spread of His fame. See, unlike pagan gods, the God of Israel was not a regional God with regional influence. He was the God of all people and all places, a spirit who exists everywhere at all times. He was the living God, and His power and influence was not limited to a specific piece of real estate. The tabernacle itself was uh, another pointer to God's intention to include all people uh, in His family. In this way, the tabernacle was approachable. See, no matter where you come from in life, no matter what's happened in your life, if you're rich, poor, young, old, if you're well-dressed or if you're just beat to tar from life and roughed up and covered in trail dust, anybody can approach a tent, a humble tent. However, a giant stone gold-clad architectural marvel of the ancient world puts off a little bit of a different persona. It says, uh, dinner jacket, shine shoes, well-dressed, combed hair, reservations required. Don't just come rolling up here without announcing yourself. And if you're all skunky, you need to get cleaned up first. The thing to understand is this. The Israelites ended up with an exclusive religious structure. A, a sacred place guarded by sacred men who read sacred texts. And, and here's point number two. Religion always follows this same recipe. Sacred places guarded by sacred men who are the gatekeepers of sacred knowledge or secret uh, goings-on. So, into the world now arrives Jesus. The Jewish religious leaders, they picked up on something that we in our time maybe miss, they realized immediately that Jesus was not Judaism 
but rather he was a serious threat to everything that they valued religiously. And one of the most offensive things that Jesus ever said is recorded in Matthew uh, 12, verse 6. And Jesus is referring to himself, and he says, Yet I tell you that there is one here who is even greater than the temple, referring to himself. We need to understand this. For the first century Jew, there was no one and nothing more important or greater than the temple. Nothing. And claiming to be greater than the temple was blasphemy, blasphemy worthy of death. A threat to the temple was a threat to the whole nation. The the temple represented the presence of God on earth. So if someone claimed to be greater than the temple, they were claiming that the temple was useless. But there's a little irony there. There's Jesus, God on earth. Yeah, he has every right to say the temple is, is useless. On another day, Jesus arrived at the temple courtyard with his disciples, and what he did when he got there is the type of thing that would get a person arrested. And we'll take a look at it in a moment, but before we do, I want to bring up this uh, depiction of uh, the first temple in Jerusalem, and this is a uh, just kind of an outline. I, I want to go through this just a little bit so we can understand where it is that Jesus is arriving when he gets there with his disciples. I bought a laser pointer for this very moment, and it's on my recliner in my bedroom. So... <laughs> the bold black area there, you'll see a little teeny room, a little perfectly square room, and that is, that's the epicenter of everything that's happening in the Jewish temple. That is the most holy place, the holiest of holies. In that room is uh, kept the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a pretty simple thing. It's a wooden box, acacia wood, or olive wood box. It's covered in gold, and it's an ark. An ark is a container, so all it means. And it contains... Uh, the Ten Commandments actually contains the tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, actually the second set. He threw the first ones at Aaron's calf and lost him. He had to go back and get a, a redo. Um, contains those, those Ten Commandments. And then the lid of that box is a, is a very special thing. It's a gold-clad lid. It has two angels that face one another, golden angels. And the area in the middle between those two angels is referred to as the mercy seat. That is, the actual place where God would manifest His presence within the temple, and it's the place where once a year the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice for sin for the people of Israel. Three walls around it, and then the wall moving to, uh, to your right there on that picture, there's a curtain that goes from top to bottom. It's called the veil. The veil is what separates the most holy place from the holy place in the room. Now, if you just step outside of that, the holy place, that's a room that's uh, reserved for priests only and only ritually clean priests, so not important for today's discussion, but in other words, there's a a list of activities and places and things that they can't have gone, done, or touched for a certain amount of time before they could be there. And then outside of there, we have uh, courtyards for men of Israel, courtyards for priests of Israel, courtyards for women of Israel, and then we have this real big courtyard around all this still within the temple complex, and that is the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is an important place in the temple. It is a place that is reserved for non-Jews, people from all over the world, all backgrounds, all nations, all religions, to be able to come and be close and worship the God of Israel, set aside for that. Um, And this is where Jesus arrives uh, when we see Him in in Mark 11. But before we get there, I want just a little bit of context. We're going to take a look here at Isaiah 56 verse 7 and 8. 
This is God speaking to the prophet Isaiah about his use of this temple. Okay? He says, I will bring them, and he's speaking specifically about non-believers here. He says, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others also besides my people Israel. So there you have it again, God's mandate to Israel to bless all nations. And God's clear intention is that the temple would be a place where all people can draw near to him. And the courtyard of the Gentiles is the place that is reserved for that. And this is where we see Jesus and his disciples arrive in Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 15 through 17. It says, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Jesus says to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's referring there to Isaiah 56 that we just read. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus is not happy here. He's, uh, he's quite upset. He's upset because the people had filled the place reserved for outsiders and for non-Jews. They'd filled it with money changers and salesmen, people getting rich on God. They're, they're using this, this place and filling this space as a... So what's going on is there's a temple tax. And so no matter where you come from, you have to... So you have to pay the temple tax, but you have to pay it in temple money. So we're, we're going to take your money and charge you an exorbitant exchange rate. Oh, you want to make a sacrifice? No problem. You have to buy one of these animals, though, to sacrifice. It's a very pricey dove. Believe me, it'll feel like a sacrifice after you pull your wallet out. That's what they were doing here, and Jesus is not having it. He's so displeased. He's, he's upset because he doesn't see a lighthouse. He doesn't see a sanctuary for all people. What he sees is a spiritual mortuary. And uh, to add insult to injury, uh, as they're leaving the temple area, someone says to Jesus, somebody comments on the amazing architecture and the structure of the temple, and Jesus says, truly I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. It will all be thrown down. In other words, Jesus is seeing this situation, and he's looking at this temple, and he says, the temple is a complete teardown. It's a complete redo. It's not serving its purpose, and it's not doing what it's supposed to do. The people that heard his comment were completely shocked, but that's exactly what he meant. Uh, he meant that both physically and spiritually. See, physically in 70 AD, the Romans invade Jerusalem. They destroy the city, and they tear that temple to pieces, literally not leaving one stone upon another, which was quite a task. As we Some Bible historians, as they go back and, and look at the dimensions that we have, it's calculated that some of those foundation stones of that temple weighed 500 tons. It's a million-pound rock, not exactly a, an easy thing to remove them all. So it was literally done. And spiritually, Jesus' death on the cross completely and forever satisfied the required sacrifice for sin for all people, for all time, forever. So we're starting to put this together here. At His ascension to heaven... He then sent the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This is criti critical to grasp because the sanctuary and later the temple were built for two main reasons. Number one, it was a place for God to manifest His presence on earth. And number two, it was a place to be able to offer sacrifice for sin. 
And Jesus' arrival has perfectly and forever ended the need for temples built by hands. He is our sin sacrifice, and now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, His presence is, is uh, made known here on earth. But that's a pretty big claim to say there's no more need for temples built by hands because we can look all over the planet Earth and see thousands of temples built by hundreds upon hundreds of religions all over the place. So let's dig into it just a little bit. I mentioned the veil in the temple between the most holy place and the holy place. It's mentioned again in Scripture, Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51. This is Jesus' last moment on the cross. In verse 50, we read, And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. Okay? Next verse, 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook. This account appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we have three good witnesses that this happened. The earth shook, and that veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, exposing the most holy place to the other courtyards. But why is, that in, why is that so important? Why is that so critical? Uh, we have to understand that at the time, proximity to the temple and within the temple, proximity to that most holy place room was literally meant proximity to God. The temple courts themselves were layers of separation from that spot. So you've got uh, outsiders, women, men, priests, high priests, then the veil, then the holiest of holies. And that veil was the last barrier to the mercy seat of God. So when we understand that it was torn at Jesus' death, it gives us uh, context to Hebrews 4.16. Let's actually go back a couple of verses and start in 14. Is Hebrews 4.14. So then, since we have a, a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And then here's that veil tearing. Here's the context for verse 16. So, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Before Jesus' death on the cross, no one went boldly to the throne of God. <laughs> no one went boldly into the most holy place. You, it wasn't going to happen. Layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of, of separation and a religious st structure of, of your society and religious keeping to be able to get closer and closer. See, Jesus didn't just open the door to heaven's mercy. What he did was tear a hole in the wall an all-of-humanity-sized hole. He smashed the walls down and said, now come and get it. Come how? Timidly? No. Come boldly. Arrival always means the end of something. If you ar arrive at your destination, your journey has ended. And Jesus' arrival, Christmas time, means the end of religion. Maybe it's easy for us to think, no, 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 it means more religion because that's when more people go to church. No, it, it means the end of religion. Jesus' arrival marked the end of creating standards that only the elite could meet. 
Jesus' arrival marked the end of sacred places, sacred real estate. There's no one spot here or there that's more special than another. Jesus' arrival was the end of men who are more uh, righteous than others. Jesus' arrival was the end of one sin being greater than or less than the other. Jesus' arrival flattened all those religious things out. It's all an even playing field for all people. As we have it in Romans 3, there is none who are righteous. There are none who do good. No, not one. In other words, point number three, we are all equally lost. We are all equally doomed. Without Jesus, there is no difference. We, we don't get to say, well, I haven't sinned as much as my neighbor, so I'm probably pretty good. All I have to do is be good in my own mind. God will sort it out. I don't need Jesus. I just have to do some good things. All that nonsense is over with. He laid all that stuff flat. He literally leveled the playing field. And now we all have the same access to the same grace and the same reward for all believers. What of temples then in this post-resurrection era? Christianity does have temples. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, we read, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, and that you are not your own? See, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we invite Him in, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we become His temple. We become the place where He manifests His presence and where He shows Himself here on earth at this time. If you're a Jesus believer today, you're not your own. You're His, bought and paid for by His death on that cross and His resurrection three days later. But His what? You are His temple. You are the place that God chooses to manifest His presence on earth at this time. And, and what does that mean to us in our daily comings and goings? It means that you don't have to go somewhere. You don't have to go to a special place to ask for, for God's forgiveness. You don't have to go to a special place to pray or to receive mercy. You don't have to go somewhere to get close to God. Instead, you just invite Him in, and He meets you right where you're at. Okay, but what about shrines? What about prayer rooms? What about special little corner in, in our house or a little place out in the yard that we just dedicate to God, and that's the place where we can do that, right? Where we can go light a candle and have that be our special spot that we go pray. Um, look, if you haven't figured it out by now, I'll be honest with you, I am not an authority on anything. I am just a regular redneck from Stockton. However, we do have access to a religious authority on the subject. The apostle Paul, first called Saul, uh, was a high-ranking Pharisee of the Sanhedrin, so he was of the ruling class of the religious judges in Israel knows his Old Testament really, really well, understands Jewish law really, really well. Saul was uh, uh, someone who didn't care too much for Christians. He was kind of a mocker of Christians right up until the day that he became one on the road to Damascus. And since then, uh, he changed his name to Paul, and, and he's been one of the most influential uh, Christians probably of all times. A little bit of argument about how many books he wrote, but somewhere between 8 and 13 of your books in your New Testament, Paul is the author of. So, this is a guy we can go to and have some pretty, pretty rock-solid authority on the issue. Let's hear from him on it. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Greece, and he's, he's there on a mission trip, and he's uh, 
walking around in the city, and we read that he's disturbed by how many idols, shrines, temples, and all these religious things and special places he sees all over the place. And he's preaching Jesus resurrected, and some of the people are a little disturbed. What do you mean, this guy got resurrected? That's some weird teaching. We're going to have to take you to the city council and get you checked out. So, that's where we meet with Paul, Acts 17, verse 22. Standing, uh, verse 22, so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of the altars had this inscription on it, quote, to an unknown God, end quote. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since He is Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands cannot serve His needs, for He has no needs. He Himself gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need. And we're going to jump ahead to verse 27 and see uh, God's mandate again to bless all nations. He says, His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us, for in Him we live and move and exist. Here's the bottom line. God arrives in people, not places. God arrives in people, not places. And we've just got a minute or so to go. I'll ask the band to come up and, and join me here as we wrap this up. Look, you and I are in the process of doing what the Jewish temple did not do and could not do. Through the indwelling presence of Christ, we are able to go out and bless all nations by cooperating with God's purposes in us. And when we do, when we cooperate with God's Spirit in us, we will be used by Him to reach the people around us. The people in our courtyard so to speak, the people that are within our sphere of influence, the people that we work with, live with, the people that we love, our families, our children, our friends, co-workers, neighbors. That's how God uses us to reach out and literally take Him to them. What an opportunity that we have. If you're not a believer today, I want you to know that the God of all creation, the Creator of all things everywhere, sees you, sees you right as you are today not scared of you. He's not scared of where you've been in your life. Quite the contrary. He wants you. You are wanted. You are desired and you are sought after by Him. He's removed every barrier and every obstacle and every excuse for us. He waits only for you to recognize Him, turn to Him, and accept Him. And if you do, I want you to know that He offers you forgiveness he offers you grace. He offers you an inheritance. And, and I'm not just talking about a few nice shiny little things under the Christmas tree. He offers you His inheritance. The Bible says that we are heirs, indeed co-heirs with Christ. What's Christ's inheritance? It's every single thing, everything, everywhere, all of it. And God wants to give that to you. He wants you to share in that inheritance. He has more than that. He has a purpose for you now, a meaningful purpose. Life is not just waves going where the wind blows. He has purposes for us that 
that give us meaning and that give us reason so that we can enjoy our life now. And speaking of life, He has that for you too. Life, life to the fullest, and life eternal. Remember this. Actually, before I wrap that up, I want to remind everybody that at the end of every service, we have someone here from our prayer team who would be happy to pray with you. And if there's prayer needed for any subject, please please feel free to, uh, to join us here after service for prayer. And if today's the day of salvation for you, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today. And that, that's tomorrow too, and it was yesterday too. Today's the day of salvation. And if today's the day of salvation for you, you can do it at home. You can do it privately. You can grab a member of our prayer team after church, and you can go boldly to the throne of God and receive it. Remember this Christmas and throughout this series, it's not just about Jesus arriving in the world, but this is all about Jesus arriving in your world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your son's arrival in the world and in us. I uh, thank you for this time where you're accessible and available to all people, that we don't have to climb religious ladders and we don't have to jump through hoops and we don't have to get cleaned up in our lives uh, or in our minds before you're willing to meet us. But I thank you that you're, you're willing, able <laughs> to just meet us right where we're at. God, today give us hearts to meet others where they are and to love others the way that you do. And and Lord, give us, bless us to be able to be a reflection of you and the love that you've given us. Pray in Christ's name.